Hi friends, welcome to the Tomorrow's Tune-In Podcast for September 2008. As always, I am your host, Chris Marshall. And we got a fun show for you today. We are going to be talking with editor Michael Yuri about back issue number 30, which is due out September 17th. And back issue number 30 is going to deal with all of your favorite Saturday morning heroes, including the live-action Shazam series and also the Super Friends, among other things. But first, before that, let's get right to the news that we have here at Tomorrow's Publishing. And right now, we have got our biggest sale ever over at Tomorrow's.com on the website. And this comes right from John Morrow's personal blog. In September, we are having our largest sale in our company's 15-year history, $2 magazines and 50% off books as part of a back-to-school blowout sale now through September 30th, 2008. All in-stock issues of Rough Stuff right now, comic book artists, plus other miscellaneous magazines are only $2 each. We are also featuring more than 25 of our acclaimed booking DVD titles at 50% off cover price, including several companion artist comics history and how-to titles. This sale is only for valid orders placed at tomorrows.com through the end of September, and it does not include shipping costs. The complete list of items are available at the Tomorrow's blog. So head on over and save a ton of money. Now let's take a look at all the titles coming out in September. Starting us off, Brick Journal Compendium Volume 1, 256-page full-color trade paperback will be available September 12th. That's a Friday. And a have a regular price of $39.95. But, of course, all the pro- items that I mentioned here on the show are always for sale. Just look for the special offers on each individual page. Brick Journal Magazine is the ultimate resource for LEGO enthusiasts of all ages. This full-color book compiles the first three digital-only issues in printed form for the first time ever. LEGO car builder Zachary Swigart, showing off his version of the time-traveling DeLorean from the movie Back to the Future. Bob Carney is the LEGO castle builder extraordinaire. And Ralph Salvisberg is a LEGO plane builder. Reverend Brendan Powell-Smith, author of the LEGO version of the Bible, and NASA astronaut trainer Keith Johnson. Jake McKay from Global Community Director for the LEGO Group. And builder Jason Elman on recreating the spacecraft from 2001 A Space Odyssey and 2010 The Year We Make Contact. There are features on the Bionicle Universe, how to make your own custom bricks, plus building instructions and techniques. This book is edited, as always, by Joe Mino. Brick Journal number 3, volume 2, will be on sale Wednesday, September 17th, and be $8.95 for 90 pages. Number three has LEGO event reports from Brickworld from Chicago, the first LEGO League World Festival held in Atlanta, a piece of peace from Japan. There's also a spotlight on the creation of our amazing cover model built by Bryce McGlone. There are also interviews with Arthur Gugick and Stephen Canvin of LEGO Mindstorms to see where LEGO robotics are going. There's also a step-by-step building instructions, techniques, and more. See what's new in the LEGO hobby with Brick Journal. And that's not all Brick Journal. You can also get number three in a Brick O Journals. That is 25 copies, and you can get those for 40% off the cover price for only $134.25. That's great. If you guys have a, uh, a group, like a Cub Scout group or other organizations, 
this is a great way to get the magazine in the hands of kids or other enthusiasts uh, to buy them in bulk like this. So check out the website tomorrows.com for more details. Moving on, we got the Jack Kirby Collector Volume 6 for $29.95. This 288-page trade paperback is always edited by John Morrow and will be in stores and on the website on Wednesday, September 17th. This six-trade paperback reprints issues 23 through 26 of the Jack Kirby Collector, the critically acclaimed magazine about Kirby's life and career. Included are issues spotlighting Jack's greatest battles, gods, and a special issue spotlighting Kirby's Golden Age work with Joe Simon, from co-creating Captain America to pioneering romance comics and beyond. There are several rare interviews with Kirby himself, plus new ones with comics pro Denny O'Neill, Jim Shooter, John Severin, and Walt Simonson. Plus, see a complete 10-page unpublished Kirby story. That's kind of cool. Jack's awe-inspiring original pencils to Fantastic Four 49, which, of course, is the first appearance of the Silver Surfer. A gallery of Kirby's original concept paintings from the Fourth World characters, of course, are very hot right now thanks to DC's reprinting of the entire Fourth World saga. Analysis comparing Kirby's margin notes to Stan Lee's dialogue on classic Marvel comics. That should be interesting. <laughs> and new special section with over 30 pieces of Kirby art and never before published, including Jack's uninked pencils from the fourth world, the Demon, Commandy, the Eternals, Captain America, Black Panther, and more. With page after page of rare Kirby art, much in its original pencil form. And an amazing 1960s Kirby Silver Surfer cover. It's an unprecedented tribute to the most prolific creator in comics history, Jack King Kirby. But that's not all the Kirby we have for you in September. Oh, no. We've got the Jack Kirby Collector number 51 for $9.95, which is also due Wednesday, September 17th. This is 184 pages. This issue leads off with a rare interview with Jack Kirby himself, followed by new interviews with two of the hottest artists in comics, Jim Lee and Adam Hughes, discussing how Kirby influenced them. In addition to numerous articles on all things Jack, there's Mark Evanier's regular column about his former boss, two huge Kirby pencil art galleries, and a complete Golden Age Jack Kirby story, two color unpublished Kirby covers, and more. And then finally out Wednesday, September 17th, it seems like everything's going out the 17th, we have back issue number 30, and this will lead right into our interview with Michael Yuri. Back issue number 30 will be for $6.95 and be 100 pages. Back issue number 30 tunes you into your favorite Saturday morning heroes headlined, the, headlined by the 1970s Shazam comics revival and TV show, including interviews with TV's Captain Marvel Jackson Boswick and John Davey. They both played uh, Shazam on that. And a look at Elias S. Magan and Alex Saviak's lost sequel to the 1974 Superman-Captain Thunder battle. Also, Space Ghost interviews the legendary Gary Owens, the voice of Space Ghost. That is should be interesting. And artist Steve Rude, Marv Wolfman's guest editorial about Ruby Spears' Superman cartoon series, Super Friends in the comics and on TV, and the unproduced fourth wave of Superpowers action figures, Astro Boy, the latest chapter in Bob Rosakis' fantasy history of AA Comics, plus Adam Hughes pays tribute to the Rocketeers' Dave Stevens, with art by C.C. Beck, Dave Cockrum, Ramona Fredon, Gil Kane, Andy Smith, Ken Stacy, Alex Toth, Alan Weiss, 
and an all-new cover painting of the Jackson Boswick as Captain Marvel by Alex Ross himself. Of course, this is edited by Michael Yuri, And let's get right to the interview with Michael Yuri right now. And we talk about a lot of things. We talk about Superman, we talk about Shazam, and all things covered in this magazine. A little more in-depth than I just did in the solicitation rundown. So I'll catch you on the flip. Here we are back again with Michael Yuri, the editor-in-chief of Back Issue Magazine. And for the September 2008 issue, it's all going to be about Saturday morning cartoons. And it's featuring Shazam on the cover. And uh, Michael, welcome back to tomorrow's tune-in. Thanks, Chris. It's great to be here. What can we expect from Back Issue 30 and the Saturday morning cartoon uh, issue? Well, actually, as a, as a minor correction, it's Saturday Morning Heroes. Oh, so, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. No problem. But, uh, well, a lot of fun <laughs> and uh, sort of a, a nice, warm, fuzzy feeling from that issue because it covers uh, some characters who we either saw on television or who uh, sort of should have been on television. <laughs> and uh, I'll, I'll, I guess I'll explain. Um there are a few interviews in the issue with uh, people like, oh, Nick Cuddy, uh, C-U-T-I. He's the co-creator of E-Man, and he actually is a character named Captain Cosmos. And he has done a series of kid vids where he is uh, this space-spanning hero and uh, other folks in his uh, acting community and family uh, actually are there and, uh, and, and performing in this. It, it's definitely got the feel of these 70s, uh, 1970s Saturday morning TV shows. So we actually have an interview with him on that topic in the issue. And then we go into also the Shazam TV show. Absolutely. Uh, TV show and the comics. Uh, so just to be clear... There's comics and cartoons covered in the issue. Um, there's a lot of Shazam. Uh, the lead feature in the issue is a look at the DC Comics revival of Captain Marvel in the early 70s, which is uh, you know, this bizarre thing because you know historically DC, under a wholly different administration some decades earlier, had basically sued uh, Captain Marvel out of existence because of supposed copyright infringement upon Superman. And then, so, you know, oddly, uh, a couple of decades later, when uh, DC, under the leadership of Carmine Infantino as editorial director, was looking for new stuff to do, they sort of dipped into the past and pulled Captain Marvel out of mothballs and then uh, introduced him as a DC comic in the Shazam title. And you've got interviews with both actors, Jason Boswick and John Davey here. That's right, that's right. Uh, the, the, they're the guys who actually played Captain Marvel on TV. Um, and you know, after DC's revival of Captain Marvel kind of put the, the character back on the pop culture radar, uh, the powers that be at uh, Filmation, who was you know, one of the big uh, TV animated and live-action you know, kid program producers of the 70s, uh, they thought that Captain Marvel would be perfect uh, for television, and uh, you know he it was sort of like you know 
what if Captain Kangaroo uh, had a personal trainer and was a superhero because he was really you know, uh, kid-friendly. Uh, he delivered a, a moral at the end of each story. Uh, the episodes were sort of like a superhero meets the ABC after-school special because each episode had the, you know, the same basic plot. There was a child or a teenager who was in trouble. And Billy Batson, who had this David Cassidy haircut, would uh, you know traverse the country in this big Winnebago with the Shazam lightning bolt on the front, and uh, he would meet these kids, and then later become Captain Marvel to you know pull their butts out of the fire. I was always partial to Mr. Green Jeans instead of Captain Kangaroo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's. There's a little bit of a controversy of why John Davy took over the role as, from. Uh, from Boswick. Can you enlighten us on why this switch was made? Yeah, uh, both of the actors actually tell you about it, and uh, and since they tell essentially the same stories from the flip-flop point of view, I, I guess that's pretty accurate. But uh, the, the controversy, I guess, was... Uh, the producers thought that Jackson Boswick, the first Captain Marvel... Uh, was holding out for more money by not showing up to work, uh, like at the third or so episode in the second season. And actually what had happened was the man had sustained an injury and could not work. And so they quickly filled the yellow boots with John Davy. They literally called this guy in, and within a couple of hours he was on the set <laughs> in the costume and, and uh, you know hooked up the harnesses and, and raring to go. But... Um, I, I think that there was a little bit of you know political friction and some tension behind the scenes too, and perhaps the producers were looking for uh, a, a way out and to put somebody else in the role. And you know, to their mutual credit, both guys really did a good job. Although it was one of those strange moments in television when you're a kid, when you know you tune in one week and then you tune in the next week, and and things have changed. Like I remember when I was younger when Bewitched was on television and like from one season to another, like halfway through the show's run, Darren had changed. Yeah, and, the two uh, Darrens, you know, yeah. You know, yeah, and you sort of like wonder as a kid, like what what happened? Like they're they're not fooling me. I know <laughs> this is not the same guy. They're calling him Darren, but uh, you know, he's he's not the same guy. So the same thing sort of happened with Captain Marvel and there's even an interesting story in the interviews where uh in the personal appearance trail, which is, both of these actors uh were on the road a lot, uh, in the costume doing signings and things. Uh, and, and kids loved them. They would line up and but you know, one kid watched uh, apparently a repeat of uh, Shazam with the first Captain Marvel, and then went to a personal appearance uh, and was a little <laughs> puzzled mm. <laughs> to see a different guy there. Wait a minute, you know, you're not Captain Marvel, but um, yeah, I think that's the story. Before we move on to the other uh, Saturday morning superheroes, let's talk a little bit about uh, your addition to back issue number thirty, and that is the 1974 Superman Captain Thunder sequel. Oh yeah, yeah. That's pretty cool. Um it <laughs> Superman issue number 276 uh was a story that took place in the actual DC universe and just in case you don't know, uh back in the day when they revived Captain Marvel, he really wasn't on what then was DC's Earth 1. He was what they later ended up calling when they tried to consolidate all this Earth S mm -hmm. as in Shazam. 
but uh, that really didn't matter for those Captain Marvel stories because they were all very, you know, kid-oriented. They were very light-hearted, and they did exist in sort of a reality all their own. But uh, in the pages of Superman, they uh, had this like uh, dimensional displaced, you know, doppelganger of Captain Marvel called Captain Thunder, who actually appeared in the Superman story. And uh, he had been controlled by some villains and was basically, you know, walloping the crap out of Superman. And so a longtime comic book readers finally got kind of, sort of, the chance to see Captain Marvel and Superman duke it out in that story. And so it turns out that Elliot S. Magan, who wrote that story some old 10 or so years later, actually 12 years later, uh, near the end of Julius Schwartz's editorship of Superman, uh, Elliot actually wrote a sequel. And Alex Saviak was penciling this. Hmm. And uh, <laughs> however, as an article I wrote in The Greatest Stories Never Told uh, reveals, Julie Schwartz kind of got cold feet about this because of a couple of things that had happened since the publication of the original story, including uh, not one but two different characters who had come about named Captain Thunder. And uh, he kept insisting upon changes and more changes and more changes to the story, and it started to steer it and veer it just far away from what it was supposed to be. And so they finally canned it, and it just never appeared. And I had no idea this existed Mm -hmm. um, until Alex Saviak basically pitched, not to me, but to Roy Thomas for Alter Ego, uh, this story about a character named Colonel Lightning. Uh, as a Superman story that uh, never appeared. He said he had 12 pages of pencils and uh, from the 80s, and Roy told him, well, actually, you know, the 80s is Michael's terrain for back issues, so Alex contacts me and tells me about this uh, Colonel Lightning story, and I said, okay, let me take a look at them. The pages. And he sent me the pages, and it turns out that this Colonel Lightning, I thought, wait a minute, that's Captain Thunder. I know this guy. And so I start to dig around and then find the the bizarre story that they actually ended up (laughs) promoting him from Captain Thunder to Colonel Lightning. And when you have to go through and start to reinvent your story as you're telling it, you know, you've got problems. And so it's still an interesting look back at something that might have been that just never really happened. You know, you wonder how many, you know, things were thrown in the wastebasket, whether it be from... DC or National or Timely or Marvel or, you know, Gold Key or whatever, you know, all the lost stories that just got thrown out by editors that would be awesome to have right now in even a pencil form these days. You know, that's one of the fun things about this Greatest Stories Never Told feature in Back Issue, and it doesn't appear in every issue, but it appears, you know, pretty regularly. And these things are a lot of fun, although... uh, Back some, what, five-plus years ago now when we started Back Issue, originally Greatest Stories Never Told appeared in every issue, and I was actually writing it, and I thought, this is going to be the coolest feature in the world. And then, boy, I realized what a landmine, uh, a minefield this this was, because some of these stories were not published for reasons that people are still PO'd about 30 years later. I mean, sometimes there are politics involved. Other times, you know, there's just something happened creatively or the... The, the, the spark wasn't there or uh, somebody was very attached to the series and then had to do something else or what. I mean, there, there, are, there are myriad reasons why these things didn't happen. And, and some of the stories and the material that didn't get published was really kind of interesting. And then sometimes you dig 
up one that you realize, well, they made the good call by, you know, by shooting this lame horse in the head and not putting him out on the track. Uh, because, you know, sometimes things get approved and then you take a look at what you've done and you realize that maybe this isn't our best foot forward. And so, yeah, not every single one of these things is the gym that I, I originally thought it was going to be. But, uh, and also, um, some of the fanzines of the day in the 70s and 80s reported these series that were in development and then uh, you, know, you try to find something on them and you can't. Um, there, that was before you know, digital files uh, and so maybe somebody's got a you know, photocopy file somewhere on it that's you know, yellowed from 30 years uh, of time passes, passing, but uh, you, you never know. You never know. Mm-hmm. Also, during the 1970s, DC was all, not only were they going strong with Captain Marvel's live action, but the Super Friends cartoon was just hotter than hell, man. I mean, just that was it. I mean, that's what I grew up with. Oh, yeah. Up. And uh, what, what have you done in the uh, back issue this month for uh, to uh, pay tribute to that? Uh, two things, actually. Um, a guy named Daryl McNeil, who is an animator and uh, uber comics geek, and I, I use geek, of course, as a term of endearment. You know, when it comes out of my mouth, that's a, that's a flowery term. As praise is not an insult. So uh, uh, Daryl McNeil um, actually worked on Super Friends and uh, has done a backstage pass column about some of his recollections and some of his behind-the-scenes, you know, um, additions to uh, whatever, uh, to the various incarnations of the show. Um, He actually being probably the only true DC Comics fan and reader who was actually contributing to the show helped make some of the characters actually appear on TV more like the DC characters rather than what these guys who really didn't understand the characters might have turned them into if they'd been left to their own devices. Uh, things like, oh, uh, wanting to color the flash something other than red because we already had a lot of red in Superman's costume, so let's make him orange or something like that, you know. And uh, But then again, Aquaman's orange, so just go figure. But anyway, um, you know, revelations of things like that. And there are a few uh, you know, character sketches that, that he provided. And then Andy Mangles, who is also another, you know, tremendous, uh, you know, fountain of knowledge about uh, comics and animation, has written an article about the history of DC's Super Friends comic book, which um, for a TV spinoff, it's, it's kind of weird, you know. I guess it was <laughs> came full circle, you know, because Super Friends are basically, you know, the the kid-oriented. TV version of the Justice League, and then it ends up becoming a comic book. But uh, it, that comic ran for quite a few years, and um, Andy has done a history of it. You know, talked to a few of the people behind it, including uh, Ramona Fradon. Uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name correctly. F R A D O N. You know, it's one of those names you read and have read for years, and I've never actually met her, and I'm not sure how to pronounce that. But anyway, if I've mispronounced it, I apologize. But uh, she has a couple of recollections about drawing the characters, too. And that, again, was a pretty successful comic for DC for quite a while. And they still actually uh, have done, oh, in the past what, handful of years, uh, two trade paperback collections. Alex Ross did uh, a cover painting for at least one of them. Mm-hmm. 
Well, then he used and Ross. The, yeah, then Ross did not only yeah. that, but then he went on to create Justice, which was all about uh, the Legion of Doom, more or less. Oh, absolutely. You know, mm-hmm. this, this is another thing. Is that actually this kind of shows where, and, and this is why this uh, Saturday Morning Heroes theme is just so perfect, because again, it's not exclusively comics. It's not exclusively TV. It is how these two worlds have walked hand in hand. And again, okay, Super Friends is the kid-friendly version of the Justice League, but Alex Ross grows up watching Super Friends. That led him to DC Comics, mm-hmm. and then he ends up you know, co-producing Justice, which is sort of the DC Universe's version of, right. of Super Friends, yeah, with the Legion of uh, Doom. And then those characters and concepts keep coming back. You know, the, uh, the Justice League Unlimited cartoon of a few years ago you know, brought the Legion of Doom back. Even the old... Uh, you know, dome shaped, creepy. Uh, you know, yeah. swamp, submerged headquarters, all that kind of stuff. And, well, that that headquarters yeah. is in Final Crisis going on right now. Yeah, so there you go. So, I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's even it's to this come day. Back. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and so yeah, with back issue, we have the the joy of um, you know digging up the stuff. I mean, it's, it's never like this. Um, it's not like we're grave robbing. We're we're uh, you know, <laughs> or nor are we trying to breathe life into. Stuff that only you know thirty, seventy-year-old men remember. It's you know, we we go back and look at the era where comics really got a jump start. I mean, you know, the all these characters came about in the golden age. Then they got you know rebooted or with the Marvel universe introduced. Or there were some of those were reboots like Captain America, you know, in the Silver Age. But then mm-hmm. in the '70s and '80s, you know. Creators just kind of went wild. That's when they really started to come up with new characters or new takes on characters. That's when the merchandising really hit. You know, stuff we take for granted today. You know, there were what fourth million uh, Batman action figures, but back then there weren't many. And then, but that's when that stuff really started to happen. The you know the Seven Eleven Slurpee cups with superheroes and. Miko action figures, all these things were still pretty new, but more and more things came out. You know, Joker staplers, I mean, all this, all this bizarre merchandise. But uh, again, it sort of paved the way to what we know as being reality today. But back then, it was new and exciting, and you know, things like graphic novels, all that stuff started in the 70s and 80s, and miniseries. Again, things that are just staples, but um, that's when they really got their start. So I, you know, the Bronze Age of comics is, uh, I think, you know, uh, one of the most influential periods of uh, the medium's history. And a lot of these old TV shows are now getting collected on DVD, which is great, the old uh, oh, yeah, Saturday morning yeah. stuff. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, there have already been a, a few seasons of Super Friends out, mm-hmm. too. And, uh, yeah, I mean, Super Friends, too, was this, this uh, you know, it ended up being just that, that core group of characters. Uh, but then as the show progressed, and it never sort of went away. I mean, it was on for a long time, and yeah. they would reboot it every couple of years and call it something different and add more characters. But uh, And they created a few for the show. But uh, yeah, then over time, you know, I mean, Green Lantern and uh, uh, Flash and Hawkman were seen regularly, and then occasionally you'd get a, you know, a guest appearance by another character, and then even some oddball characters like Rima the Jungle Girl would appear, and, you know, people would say, who's that? But... Uh, yeah. Do you know of Rima the Jungle Girl? No, not off the top of my head, no. It was a, a series that DC published in the mid-70s. It didn't last for long, maybe six mm-hmm. issues off the top of my head, and I, I might be an issue or so off. But 
drawn by this wonderful uh, South American artist named Nestor Redondo. Beautiful stuff. Joe Kubert edited it and drew the covers. Huh. And uh, Rima was an exotic um, a South American jungle princess, uh, you know, one of these white princesses of the jungle type thing that uh, that had this uh, ability to you know, control and talk to animals. And uh, it turns out that she was actually, this, this whole comic was an adaptation, and I didn't know this at the time, of uh, a novel that ended up being made into a movie in 1950 starring Audrey Hepburn. So this is like this wow. weird little you know piece of trivia. Eventually we're going to do an article on Rima. She's only mentioned in the Super Friends article, but uh, yeah, it's just kind of an interesting genesis for this character. And then they ended up... I guess the producers at Hanna-Barbera, you know, we're like looking through all the DC stuff. Who can we put in here? We want to make sure we have a broad ethnic representation. And, well, hey, look at this, uh, you know, scantily clothed, uh, you know, South American gal with this, uh, you know, snow white hair. She's kind of exotic. Let's make her a super friend. Like she's a last person who'd ever hang out with costume superheroes. But still, you know, hmm. just to give it a kind of a global feel, um, she ended up on some episodes. <laughs> and there you go. What else can we expect from back issue number 30? Oh, let's see. Adam Hughes wrote a tribute to Dave Stevens. Excellent. Um, yeah, you know, one of the heartbreaking things about the death of Dave Stevens, I mean, obviously the guy died too young. Yeah. And, uh, you know, also within the comics world, a lot of people had just wondered, you know, why didn't he produce more? He's so talented. Why did it take so long to come out with an issue of Rocketeer? And then, you know, and then, you know, why so little from this vast talent? And it turned out that for years he pretty much kept to himself, or at least among a you know, circle of friends, that uh, he was not well. Mm-hmm. And um, when he passed away, uh, it affected a lot of people. And, um you know, I had talked to Dave off and on over the years about doing like a Rocketeer cover and back issue and then, you know, a nice uh, article about it. Obviously, that never came to pass, but when he died, I, you know, I had to do something in back issue. Um, and I thought about it, and, you know, oftentimes when creators die, editors like me in these magazines, you, you, you put a call out to people to write tributes, and they're always well-intentioned, but then it kind of becomes, you know, 30 people saying the same thing, Mm -hmm. and I wanted something really different. And so I contacted Adam, um, whom I've known for a long time, because I was Adam's, you know, first regular editor way back in the late 80s. I was at Kamiko. I edited a comic written by Mike Barr, a crime comic called The Maze Agency, and that was Adam's first regular series. So I knew from that time when Kamiko was also launching The Rocketeer, uh, or at least the new return of The Rocketeer, uh, that Adam was greatly inspired by Dave Stevens. So I asked Adam to write a tribute. And if this does not at least make you well up <laughs> with tears. Uh, you are heartless. I mean, seriously, it, it is it is a it is a stirring and stunning tribute that just um, to the, the the person and to his talent. And uh, I'm, I'm really honored to have that in the issue. And um, it just makes sense too because with the theme of Saturday Morning Heroes, you know, the Rocketeer is kind of like the, it harkens back to those old uh, Saturday morning movie serials right. that predate you and me. 
but we're very much aware of them. That's what, you know, got kids to go to the movie theaters every single Saturday and plop down there, whatever it was they paid to get in to see all those, you know, trailers and serials and um, and cartoons and stuff. And, and The Rocketeer really kind of evoked that type of cliffhanger excitement. And uh, so I thought it just was also, you know, thematically was appropriate to be in the issue, too. And we do have a two-page uh, uh, art tribute to Dave Stevens, too. Um, just let some of his images, you know, speak for themselves and, mm-hmm. and for him. But uh, let's see. What else is in the issue? We have um, Gary Owens' Space Ghost. Oh, yeah, this is cool. <laughs> uh, yeah, Gary Owens was the voice of Space Ghost in virtually every incarnation of the cartoon, including Space Ghost, Coast, Coast. And so we have an interview, an exclusive interview with him. And he's also a cartoonist. He, uh, it turns out he had studied with, of all people, Charles Schultz. And huh. we've got a few of Gary Owens' cartoons in back issue number 30, including the... Uh, the interview, and uh, if everything works out, too, we're probably going to podcast part of that interview on tomorrow's site, just because Gary Owens is known for his voice, you yes. know, and yes. even though you can read his words, it still would be really cool to hear them, so I think, uh, you know, an excerpted uh, version of the interview might also be appearing. And then uh, you have Space Ghost interview Steve Rude? Yeah, yeah, Steve Rude drew uh, a Space Ghost one-shot at Kamiko, and uh, it, it was written by Mark Evanier and uh, inked by Willie Blyberg and colored by Ken Stacy. and this darn thing actually looks like uh, an episode of the original cartoon show. Oh, great. And uh, yes, yeah, a wonderful, wonderful uh, one-shot. It was done in 1988, and there's an interview with Steve Rude, and there's also some Steve Rude art, including uh, Steve Rude, Hanna-Barbera Heroes art gallery of characters like the Herculoids and such, you know. that. Uh, oh, very cool. Uh, yeah, the fun stuff. And uh, Oh, there's also an article um, about the superpowers, action figures, um, about the uh, this is another greatest stories never told. It's um, the unproduced fourth wave of superpowers figures. They did three years worth of figures, and then you know fans have always wondered were they going to do more. And then a few prototypes like a Catwoman appeared on the marketplace and uh, a Man Bat, and so people always kind of dreamt, gee, what were the other figures? And uh, a guy named Jason Geyer, who is a toy designer. Um, has a wonderful website about this. And I saw this website, and I said, you know, we ought to do a version of this for Back Issue. And he happily agreed. And, uh, yeah, we have some pictures of some uh, actual prototypes from Kenner in D.C. of some things that were planned and, you know, more variations of existing characters and other characters that were, you know, planned to actually have action figures that now probably 20 years or more later actually have been action figures. But back then it was like, you know, who would have thought about the creeper as an action figure, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, that was just kind of weird. And uh, you know, and uh, characters that were created for Super Friends, like you know, Black Vulcan and uh, El Dorado, things like that. So a lot of these things were uh, in development. Even the Wonder Twins. So yeah, Wonder Twins powers activate. <laughs> <laughs> Got to get uh, Marvin and Wendy an action figure. That would be, you know, one of those weird things that uh, guilty pleasure that I probably, yeah. as a grown man, would go in and buy, <laughs> and uh, just because it's just too weird, you know. But uh, I'd, and, and of course, Wonder Dog, it'd have to be a three yes. pack. Yeah, but actually, I've got uh, I've got this little shelf of uh, 
all these bizarre pets, you know, these like superhero animals. And you know, I, I, I did of course write this book called Comics Gone Ape, so I've got this fascination with this stuff. But you know, I've got Crypto and Bat Hound and you know Streaky the Super Cat and uh, <laughs> Beppo the Super Monkey, and I bought this Billy Batson Hoppy the Marvel Bunny two pack just to get that darn you know you know rabbit in the in the Shazam suit, but uh, <laughs> yeah, they're all kind of gathered together in my little superhero zoo. <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> oh, we all have our guilty uh, pleasures, though. I've got mine. Go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's one more thing in the issue too. I've got to mention too. It's uh, um, Marv Wolfman has written an editorial about um, the show that he uh, worked on on Saturday morning in the late 80s, uh, The Adventures of Superman. And Gil Kane did a lot of uh, character designs. And it was uh, a wonderful but short-lived, one-season um, you know, Superman animated series that was on CBS on Saturday mornings. And um, it was right on the heels of the John Byrne, uh, Marv Wolfman, Man of Steel, Adventures of Superman reboot. Okay. And so the Lex Luthor of that era, the 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 businessman, you know, the mm-hmm. LexCorp guy was the the villain, not the not the one they had jettisoned, you know, the guy who went from the um prison togs to the high tech suit, which of course he Lex is wearing again in the comics. You right. know, again everything just comes back again and uh yeah, but uh, Marv has written uh behind the scenes piece of how that Superman show came about. So yeah, again, even though it sounds like it might be an animation issue, it's not. But then again, it kind of sort of is. So, yeah, for uh, people who really want to read about comics, there's no shortage of comics material in the issue. And then finally, Have I talked a, enough? Have I no, bored you? This is, no, it's perfect. <laughs> and then uh, finally, you've got a cover by Alex Ross, uh, the Shazam cover. The, and it's the mm-hmm. Jackson Bostwick cover that Correct. he did. So that's a yeah, it's, tribute, yeah. It, it's wonderful, yeah. And, and you know, and the the fun thing about that cover is, um, you know, it has Captain Marvel flying up, and that's something you never got to do on the show. Because yeah. if you think about the special effects, as limited as they were, you know, he basically uh, both the guys who played them uncomfortably were harnessed and hanging on wires in front of uh, you know a blue field, whatever, and then you know the the other scenery was do- dropped in behind them. So they always were kind of stilted and, you know, just flat. Mm-hmm. They had their arms extended, and then, of course, you had the you know, sound effect and then the, you know, theme yeah. song in the background. And, and uh, so Captain Marvel was flying. But, uh, yeah, with uh, <laughs> Alex Ross, we actually have him flying skyward. And when I saw that, I, you know, said, well, here's the perfect, you know, cover copy, and we put it above the logo, Fly high with Saturday Morning Heroes, so yeah. it's just it's fun to see Captain Marvel finally go up <laughs> rather than just sideways. <laughs> well, back issue number thirty is a hundred pages and it's six ninety five and will be out Wednesday, September seventeenth. That's it. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Chris. I really appreciate the time. My thanks to Michael for coming on the Tomorrow's Tune In today. We've had him on the, in the past episodes, and I'm sure we're going to have him on future episodes as well. Be sure to come by Tomorrow's.com and check out the blog. John Morrow is always blogging about new and exciting stuff happening over at Tomorrow's.com. And be sure to grab the RSS and put it in your favorite reader so you are always up to date.
as news happens. And be sure to check out my other podcast, the Collective Comics Library, the comic book and trade paperback podcast, where I talk about all the happenings in the collected edition world, including DC Archives, Marvel Masterworks, uh, from all companies, DC, Marvel, Image, Dark Horse, and of course, a little bit of Tomorrow's and all the rest. My name is Chris Marshall, and you can reach me at CollectedComicsLibrary at gmail.com. Questions or comments are always welcome, and of course, come by the Tomorrow's.com for all the greatest and latest with Tomorrow's Publishing. And of course, please leave an iTunes review if you get a chance. So until next month, everybody, have a good one. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.